Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media present Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera, and this is episode 10. Today, we'll be talking about super materials of the future. By Ejox time, certain engineering and design capabilities are taken for granted building and manufacturing standards that would leave modern-day construction, industrial, and product specialists scratching their heads for a lifetime. Titanic space stations and massive cargo and military vessels capable of enduring mind-bending physical stresses are considered normal and expected. Consumer products that integrate seamlessly with the lifestyles and even the very bodies of their users are common. Energy cells that can hold their charges indefinitely, and some that are self-charging in and of themselves, are standard. Clothing and other textiles that change color and style depending upon the whims of their wearers are popular, as are ordinary, non-prescription glasses that can filter out virtually every harmful or distracting spectrum of light there is, while acting as crystal clear heads-up displays, speakers, and microphones for advanced, ultra-portable computing systems, and which can even stop a bullet. We'll investigate these seemingly magical materials, as well as a few of their less than impressive characteristics, right after the update. Well now, I'm very happy to report that things have been ramping up on the writing front. As you know, I've rather dragged my feet on book four, and most of you are doubtlessly sick and tired of hearing me whine about it. Well, not this time. While I am still on draft one of all he surveys, since the last episode, I've finished some chapters. It seems that a little bit every day beats frenzied writing marathons every time. It only took 45 years of fiction writing to learn that lesson. Not bad. Do I like it so far? Is it any good? No, to both questions. Not yet. But there are bits and pieces that have potential, and some characters and plot elements that may hold up under repeated editing. For a first draft, you can't ask for more than that. So, current status. I'm on chapter 35 at 200,000 words. Break out the pom-poms, dear listener, and cheer me on. Also, I've been working on the Star Drifter role-playing game. That's also gotten steady attention. Here to tell you about it is me, recording on the go. Okay, this is a few days after our first playtest of the Star Drifter role-playing game. It went pretty well. I'm not sure I've learned an awful lot yet about the game system as a whole, but it holds up as a basic run-of-the-mill game system for just walking around and interacting with NPCs, perhaps having a couple of skill rolls here and there. So I enjoyed it, and it seemed like other people did too. Uh, it's still early days, and we have another playtest scheduled for, oh, about two weeks from now. And we'll see how that one goes, because that should bring us into another direction in the preset adventure that I have written, and I don't know, we'll see. 
there might be problems at that stage, but um, so far so good. So that's good news. Okay, so we finished that first play test the other day, and it went really well. I think that the now the focus of this first play test that we had, and this was the second part of it, the focus of it was to test the basic combat system, to test whether the skills work by rolling dice. To, you know, does all of that does it seem like people have a reasonable chance of success or failure depending on what they're trying? All of that seemed to work pretty well. But I did get some really, really great notes and response from the playtesters. So much so that it inspired me that very night to start working on the next version of the game. But going forward, things are going to be a little bit different. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I've got right now for that. Okay, I have been working steadily on the new version of the rules, and I've gotten, I've touched almost all of them so far, but I've introduced new rules, and I've gotten rid of some others, and one of the things that I have been focusing on lately, this past week, is working on the skills and to get them clarified. What I've done is each skill that I've listed, now I've added a couple, but the thing that really sets this apart from the previous version is that I have given possible uses for each skill. And some of these uses are not exactly obvious. Some of them are. I mean, like a combat skill, it's pretty obvious what that's for. But there are other things that you could use it for. You could use it to teach. You could use it to assess the combat abilities of your enemy. You can use it for a variety of other things. So for each skill, I've tried to include uh, something that's a little twist. Like, you can use this skill for something you may not have thought of that isn't quite as straightforward, necessarily, as you, you first believed. So I'm pretty happy with that as a policy. Now, I need a lot more skills before this is a, a viable system, but for now, I think this is a good way forward. I don't know how many more skills I might or might not create for this version of the game, but assuming all of this does actually work the way it's supposed to, I do believe that the structure that I have in place, that will hold. And the good thing about this is these are, in a way, each one of these is almost a role-playing hook. Each example gives you an idea of how to solve the problem, maybe by applying this in a, in a slightly different way. Yes, there is still, more than likely, there is still a, a die roll involved, but perhaps this is something that will solve your problem, whereas before, you didn't see any way forward at all, with or without this skill. So, that's the sort of thing I want to encourage in Star Drifter. And so far, it seems to be a pretty good structure. I, I mean, I haven't playtested it, but I, I think I like what I've gotten so far. Now, one of the things that I have yet to work on, and it's an important phase of this version of the rules, is how to award character points. Now, character points are the successor to experience points in the old version. Since in this version, I've dispensed with levels, 
experience points don't really have quite the same meaning. Character points are used to improve your character, to improve their skills, to improve other, other aspects of them. And the, the one thing I haven't gotten developed just yet is how exactly do you go about awarding character points. Character points are expended one for one. So if you want to increase a skill, you expend a character point. So you've increased the skill by one point by expending a character point, one character point. And every other expenditure, the, the things that you can use the character points for, all of those work the same way. Now you're awarded character points in a similar fashion as you would experience points. So the key here is to develop some sort of system for fair awarding of these character points. The one thing I did try to make a distinction with in character points is that they're not rewards, they're awards. They're a recognition that the character has lived a certain way, done a certain thing, achieved a certain goal, and they get this award. And the award is a couple of character points. As opposed to being rewarded for all your efforts. You did this thing, so here you go. Here's, here's your payment. Here's the experience points that you're getting. That's not the way it works. And in the end, I don't want it to seem like you're automatically gonna be getting points left and right. In this game, that doesn't happen very often. It happens at the end of each adventure, not the end of each night, each night's play. At most, the Game Master will make a note of anything special that happened and anything interesting that went on that the characters did that at the end of the game, when it's all done, rather than say, yeah, they did this thing and it gets them points, what the Game Master is supposed to do anyway is to all the notes of the cool things that the players did that is perhaps above and beyond what the adventure called for, our special role-playing, great ideas, kooky solutions that no one could have foreseen, really good role-playing stuff, really good solutions to complex problems, stuff like that. And the Game Master makes a note of that, then looks at all their notes and makes a decision then whether that's worthy of one character point. Now that may seem cheap, that may seem cheap to you, but if a character point directly improves your skills, directly can improve your attributes, I think that you have to, first off, you have to be very cheap with them to begin with, but in fact they're very powerful because your character is directly affected by the things that happen. So in other role-playing games, you might get a certain number of experience points at the end of a night or even of a full adventure, and they may or may not add up to anything for your character. You might still need a lot of experience points in order to progress in the game. Whereas in Star Drifter, every adventure is an improvement in your character. So, I'm, I don't have a time frame, but we'll see how that goes. Okay, so I've, I'm at the point where version 0.03 is nearly done. That doesn't mean that it's ready for other people to see, as I've said before. I think that I'll need to look it over very carefully and, you know, looking at spots where it needs to be not just fixed, but modified. 
the next version that people are likely to see is probably 0.03.1 maybe. I've started putting some artwork into the rule book at this point and it's all this cheesy old art from old pulp magazines and stuff that's in the public domain. It's all clip art but it, it looks nice and it has, um, I don't know, it has a certain quality to it that I think is charming. It's probably not going to be the final artwork but frankly I can't even imagine the right artwork for Star Drifter. I've had trouble with covers. Everybody knows that who's looked at my my work. You know that my, my covers are problematic. Most of the covers of the short story, all of the covers of the short stories, and almost all of the ones for the books, they've all been done by me, not by a professional artist. The last one, Risk Analysis, I did pay for an artist, and it, I, and it looks okay, I guess. It looks nice. I'm, I, I like it. I do. I like it, but I don't think it captures Star Drifter. And I'm not sure what would. I can't really picture it that way because I'm not an artist. I, I don't see things visually necessarily. So I can't really tell what a good piece of artwork for Star Drifter might look like. Either the game or, or any, any other iteration of, of this material. As a result, why not go with something lighthearted, something, you know, amusing, something corny but very cool at the same time, which is, sounds strange that something could be that way, but I think it is, you know, the old spaceman with the bubble helmet type of thing. To me, I, I like that stuff, and I think that's a good direction to go. It's, it's as good as any. It's as good as any other direction to go in. Perhaps it gives the wrong impression of the game system. Perhaps people will think that it's tongue-in-cheek and old-time pulpy. And I certainly don't mean to give that impression because I don't think of Star Drifter that way myself. But for the lack of anything better, I may as well go with something that I enjoy that's within my grasp. So that's the artwork that we'll have for now in these early versions. What we'll end up with in the end is almost certainly going to be professional artwork. But I probably should leave the decision for what works and what doesn't in other people's hands. Since I really couldn't tell you. I really couldn't tell you what would be good. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's the update. We don't often think about the ground under our feet until something goes wrong. An earthquake, a slick surface, even just a crack to trip over can make us watch our footing and think carefully about where we are and what we're standing on. In the Star Drifter universe, with whole populations living upon artificial structures in the lonely darkness of space, it's someone's job to think about the ground, or more exactly the deck under everyone's feet. Actually, it's many people's job to make this decking solid, secure, and supremely reliable. After all, if there's a hole in the ground on a planet, people are still able to breathe. Polinium steel is a material mentioned over and over in the novels and stories. Most space stations and vessels in this future time are made with this metal, the name of which actually refers to a large family of alloys. Polinium has numerous properties unique to it. 
one of the most useful of which is its capacity for so-called room temperature smelting, or RTS. This is a widely utilized technique, though hardly the only one available. Other industrial methods of polonium manipulation include cold isostatic pressing, chemical bonding, and supergravity forging, processes which are all considered to be distinct from RTS. Polonium takes its name from the fact that it shares, or at least appears to share, certain behavioral properties with different types of plastics. One of these is an ability to be held in suspension within certain types of comparatively safe solvents and bond to itself when these solvents are evaporating. This allows it to be easily and economically applied in spray form over molds to form complicated structures and shapes. It can be applied to other surfaces to create composites and various discrete materials such as cabling, anti-radiation waveguides, plumbing lines, or almost anything else can be molded right in, no matter what shape is required. RTS allows all this to be done without the massive energy and temperature requirements of traditional smelting and forming. Like many heavy metals, polonium can cause toxic or negative developmental reactions in people and animals if it enters the bloodstream. Acute polonium poisoning can be fatal, but as it is an extremely stable and hard material, toxic exposure usually only occurs during its forming or smelting stages, a combined process that is largely automated. In normal everyday life, it's known to sometimes occur in small children and those suffering from the mental disorder pica who have ingested polinium in the form of small solid items that aren't able to pass through the digestive tract unaided. Substandard conditions in foundries, where human workers are either used in place of machinery or are exposed to polinium vapor due to inadequate safety standards, can also lead to toxic reactions. Care must be taken, therefore, in the RTS process or in other industrial applications of this metal, even if high temperatures are not generally involved. Though labeled as comparatively safe, RTS solvents can, by themselves, be toxic or biologically active in a closed environmental system, depending upon alloy compositions or the industrial techniques involved. Direct biological exposure to almost any aspect of the polonium production process has been shown to be detrimental to human health. For these reasons and others, it has become a common though hardly universal practice, for this industry to be located upon artificial structures in open space and upon vacuum-wrapped planetoids or other natural satellites overseen by automated systems with dedicated artificial intelligences. This level of manufacturing isolation and safety arose slowly over time. In the first few decades after its initial development, Polonium was often sold in pressurized containers that had application nozzles, not unlike oversized spray paint cans. It was often applied by hand as an impervious protective coating upon specific objects or construction projects, some of them very large. Numerous accidents, as well as the toxic side effects of direct handling, caused the present industrial methodology of polonium production to evolve. As a large-scale construction material, Polonium has some interesting properties. Chief among them, 
compression and expansion ratings that would be considered incredible by modern standards, a near immunity to fatigue stress, and impressive endurance under extreme shear, heat, cold, kinetic force, and high-energy exposure. Most, but not all, polynium formulations are inflexible, but the stress rating for these varieties can be many times that of titanium. A skyscraper made with a polynium frame can be raised to kilometers in height under Terran normal gravity and can withstand hurricane-level winds without stirring. Space vessels are routinely made from it because of this amazing resistance to stress-induced microfractures, atomic crystalline failure, and molecular separation. Certain specialized varieties even have hardness levels approaching that of diamonds. By Ejok's time, the types of polynium used for the hulls of space vessels are considered to be effective radiation shields all on their own. Beta particles, X-rays, and gamma radiation are commonly blocked or absorbed by polynium of this class. It also has resistance to high-energy charged particles like neutrons and positrons. Because of all these stated properties, a new type of space vessel hull design has arisen, the carapace. While vessel designs are still numerous in this future, Carapace engineering is popular because it allows a vehicle to dispense with a large portion of internal structural support and bracing. Inspired by the skeletal structure of turtles and tortoises, which have both inner and outer support, load-bearing and holding stress forces, that is, mass loads that push and pull upon the framework respectively, are mostly shifted to the inner hull. Internal bracing is greatly reduced, or even eliminated entirely, in certain designs. This makes the hull of even huge space vessels act much like the shell of an egg, holding the vessel together by transferring the stresses associated with spaceflight directly to it, instead of to intermediary bracing, such as load or compression supports. Right off the bat, this increases overall safety, by eliminating potential points of failure. Coupled with modern inertial compensation equipment though, which is standard upon nearly all crewed and a large number of automated space vessels, vehicles of the carapace design, when compared to ones of similar classes but with other types of hulls, generally reflect an overall reduction of dead mass which is analogous to the lightweight tonnage rating of seafaring vessels, that is to say, the mass of the vessel itself minus any cargo or consumables like atmosphere, potable water, liquid fuel, or drive propellant. The smaller the dead mass between vessels of equivalent volume, the greater the disparity between their mass propulsion potentials, or MPP, which represents the amount of mass the vessels can move through normal space at their nominal speeds. Nominal in this case means a theoretical average between the minimum and top speeds of the vessel's main drive systems. Simply put, Vehicles of the carapace design generally have a lower mass than vehicles that don't, even if they are of the same general class and size. Assuming they both have drive systems that are equivalent, 
This means the carapace vessel has more MPP than the other and can, therefore, unload more mass in the form of cargo while yet moving it all at the same speed and expending the same amount of fuel and propellant. In commercial shipping especially, this sort of thing is very important, representing huge amounts of freight haulage and therefore money made aggregated over time across a fleet of vessels. So, why all this talk about mass and tonnage? Because the carapace design, which appears over and over in the Stardrifter stories, only exists because Polinium does. It's not a magical substance. It isn't invulnerable. It's simply stronger, harder, and more adaptable than any metal that came before it. Another future metal with interesting properties is something called Kalanite. This metal is fairly strong, lightweight, and has a remarkable resistance to high energy exposure, considerably more than even that of polonium. It is typically used as a lining in fusion reactors and as a composite layer in the outer armor of military space vessels. Within the retail space, food-grade kalanite pots and pans are starting to appear, which allow thermal energy to pass through at only a certain rate, thus reducing scorching and burning. At least, that's what the ads say. Another metal often found in power generation equipment in this case as an insulation and waveform guide, is crystalline tongue steel. In addition to very high particle absorption properties, it is capable of being manufactured with nanoscale exterior grooves matching particular energy wavelengths, forming a passive radiation control surface for use in conjunction with reactor cores relying upon magnetic containment. And still another metal of this time period is so-called ceramoferrin. This started out as the brand name for a particular type of metal reinforced ceramic having a variety of manufacturing applications. The brand was poorly defended, however, and the term eventually became generic. By this point, it's applied to any and all materials that are even vaguely similar. Ceramoferrin is made with metallic nanoparticulates embedded in various kinds of glass, ceramics, and even artificial chitin, used as a lightweight structural component in wide-ranging aspects of industrial design. One of the most well-known applications is in shield glass, a type of transparent armor, and yes, this is another generic term. Shield glass behaves much like high tensile metal and is used in such products as space vessel viewports, shatterproof windows, and even retinal displays implanted in people's eyes. When steel, including polonium, is the component metal used in a ceramoferrin formulation, it becomes a lightweight alternative to certain types of armor, applicable in a liquid form that foams up under vacuum conditions and then sets. This forms a hard, low-mass protective layer that can be applied over other surfaces or even molded in forms in and of itself. If long-chain carbon lattices of various kinds, more about those in a bit, are included in the mix, they turn ceramoferrin into another durable lining for fusion reactors and other high-energy environments. 
Take this sort of material and include it in a laminate, along with kalanite, and you have yet another type of radiation shielding for the outer skin of military vessels, effective against those particles that come from directed energy weapons, as well as the associated neutron sprays which occur when such attacks strike solid matter like polonium plating. Metals aren't the only supermaterials of the future, of course. Something that's widely used is zerlion, a carbohydrate-based organic substance not unlike plastic, which can be spun out as a fine textile. Often mixed in this form with other organic fibers, zerlion has allowed for a general uptick in the durability of clothing and other textiles. Capable of aping the softness and smoothness of satin fabrics, Zerlion is nonetheless highly resistant to tearing, odors, stains, and the stresses of excessive washings. It's not unusual for a person to purchase a garment made from a Zerlion blend as a teenager and keep it all their lives, or until they get sick of it, despite daily wear and tear. Garments that resist, reduce, or entirely eliminate body odors and stains are normal, in fact, using a number of advanced fabrics, including those embedded with carbon lattice materials, which are often just referred to as carbon tribe, since there are so many different kinds available. For that matter, carbon tribe consumer products dominate everything from beauty aids to personal entertainment gadgets, as they have a very wide range of applications. For instance, lipsticks or other cosmetics that can last for weeks without fading or smearing, but which can be removed easily with cold cream. On the other end of things, mobile networked computing and communication devices as thin as paper that include displays, interfaces, and high-quality sound systems. These displays can be mass-produced and distributed very cheaply as flyers and other advertising materials, being considered entirely disposable, despite being capable of near-quantum-level computation and networking, while yet drawing so little power that the vibrations associated with temperature and motion playing upon the carbon tribe embedded within keeps them functional. The very act of handling them produces a surplus, Owning a computational device of some sort is so common, in fact, as to be nearly impossible to avoid, though some religious sects in church space are said to manage it. Data storage and manipulation has evolved into using a wide variety of materials, most of them with practically unlimited capacity. A semi-solid substance known commercially as Rixonine, a brand name that has been well defended, there are a number of similar products collectively called Smart Ublex due to the physical properties of certain early formulations, but this one is arguably the best known, allows for molecular-based data storage of incredible density. A device such as Ejox Riscomp with one half of one cc of rixinine as its prime data storage medium inside a hollow and extremely durable ceramiferin wafer the size and general shape of a fish scale has several times the sum total of all the storage mediums in all the servers, desktop computers, and portable devices on Earth today. Many people of this time period record every moment of their lives, waking or not, 
with simple, inexpensive, and always-on devices, easily available in every settlement in space. Though Rixenine is commonly used solely for data storage, it is also an all-in-one solution for simple devices, allowing for lightning-fast writes, retrievals, and processing duties. More advanced machines, such as those dedicated to scientific research, artificial intelligence housing, star jump navigation, or really any process with heavy computational needs, have much different setups. In the daily lives of most people, though, products such as Rixenine are at the heart of pretty much every computer they encounter. Even tiny droplets can be embedded within tough, flexible microcapillary tubes thinner than a human hair. These can then be woven into textiles and clothing composed of metamaterials capable of audiovisual output, monitoring of metabolic processes, tracking and remote sensor feeds, and much more. The sleeve of a shirt like this becomes a communications device all on its own, capable of two-way sound and video, network access, data storage, and those reasonable computation duties that the average consumer might need. Rixenine is sold to manufacturers under a variety of preparations for a variety of needs. While major companies use proprietary formulas for their consumer devices, smaller manufacturers, knockoff brands, suppliers of secondary markets, and even some resellers tend to buy generic formulations from a wide number of sources, not all of them above board. As a result, whenever a major brand updates its formulation requirements so as to offer some new functionality or innovation in their feature landscape, that particular variety of Rixenine becomes immensely valuable, especially to those manufacturers that exist on the fringes of legality. Of course, where there is criminal or quasi-legal knockoff manufacturing, there's often shoddy design and workmanship, too. With smart Ublex coming in nearly endless formulations, there are quite a few fly-by-night operations, also known as ship-it-and-skip-its, that use poor-quality imitation Rixenine that fails out over time. Some of the parts made with this inferior stuff can find their way into the components of even reputable manufacturers. Even in this future of computing magic and robustness, therefore, sometimes the stuff just up and dies on you. Genuine Rixenine formulas are common targets of industrial espionage and smuggling, both in sample form or just as data. These profiles allow for a variety of potential uses, depending upon the intended function of the finished product. Even a coffee cup's volume of Rixenine, earmarked for next year's hottest consumer device, might be enough to allow a shady manufacturer to spool up production on a limited run of anticipatory knockoffs, ship them out to a network of equally sleazy distributors, who then put a sheen of legality on it all by selling these goods to discount retail outlets and warehouse stores. When the stolen Rixenine supply runs out, the maker closes production, fires all their staff, then sets up again somewhere else under a brand new name to retool and pump out some new product or other. 
Cheap knockoff devices and gadgets continually flood the markets of various star systems. In the Alliance, at least, this sort of IP theft, followed up by low-cost market saturation, is of particular interest to Territorial Customs, a national law enforcement body with a focus on smuggling, contraband, tariff dodging, industrial espionage, and related crimes. In suspected cases of Rixonine pilfering a robbery, customs cops, as they are often referred to, are called in early. Their jurisdiction in such cases extends from the highest reaches of office down to the local level, whereupon interdepartmental task forces, joint operations, and simple agency cooperation come into play. While these investigations don't necessarily go smoothly, it's always a goal. One common phrase among illegal manufacturers is the old knock-knock, in reference to the stereotypical image of customs agents showing up at the doors of their shady back-alley operations, warrants in hand. Nanomanufacturing has changed the nature of most products and services. Filtering layers inside water lines remove essentially all biological, radiological, or toxic impurities, virtually eliminating the need for community-wide water treatment. Power cells that are built molecule by molecule are, by now, so safe, capacious, and long-lasting that a normal household can run on one for years without ever needing a recharge. In artificial structures such as space stations, even a total power outage, at least under most circumstances, means little interruption or inconvenience to residents, as adequate backup power is so easy to come by. Fuel production from carbohydraceous and other organic materials and compounds are catalyzed, purified, and combined in industrial bonding processes that utilize nanoparticulates long-chain strings, and molecular globs in suspension to increase the potential energy storage and conversion ratios of chemical fuels used in future engines and motors to somewhere above 98%. With high-yield renewable fuels such as kyrene, ebium solids, and tacarazole, the powering of space vessels and stations becomes viable via chemical means. Similarly, High-yield, non-nuclear explosives that can release energy in the megaton range, while nonetheless fitting into relatively small deployment packages, are another example of nanoscale industrial processing that results in a level of material purity, as well as efficiency of production and use, in excess of anything available in previous centuries. Over the years, an entire branch of applied chemistry and material science has arisen called chemergy. Originating in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, then all but abandoned as being little more than the ballyhoo of idealists and cranks, chemergy, as a field of research, saw a resurgence in the late 21st and 22nd centuries, eventually gaining ground to become a widely studied field of applied science. Though practices and general scientific approaches exist particular to it, many of which were adopted and refined over the centuries since its inception, chemergy is focused on the creation and manufacturing of industrial products or product constituents 
from raw agricultural materials. An early core tenet of this branch of science was, and still is, anything made by a hydrocarbon can be made from a carbohydrate. As a result, a very close link between farm and factory exists in this future. Large product developers and manufacturers are often in the agricultural business as well, though for purposes entirely unrelated to food. Some of this was touched upon in previous episodes, but when you combine ultra-efficient automated farming with highly precise commercial processes, genetic tailoring, and nanoscale production, you get renewable substances the like of which have never been seen. For example, imagine an agrochem-derived plastic called tiaki, yes, another brand name, that can be applied to shuttle boats as a type of spray-on shielding resistant to the heat and stresses of hundreds of planetary transfers. Despite this resilience, it's nonetheless recoverable, recyclable, and compostable by releasing molecularly bound nitrogen and nitrogenous compounds. This allows tiaki to be broken down into a high-grade fertilizer, at which point it's tipped back into the agricultural cycle to be used all over again. Farming, therefore, is a massive industry, which, as practiced in space, upon large agricultural stations, is almost entirely automated. As can be inferred, food crops make up only a small portion of the plants grown. In fact, gen-engineered algae and yeast strains, producing complex chemical and base materials grown and harvested in factory settings, represent nearly half of all farming endeavors in the settled galaxy, though it's debatable if farming is a better word for this sort of process than perhaps fermenting or just plain production. Some of these are entirely new species of prosthetically enhanced microorganisms with cell walls and organelles supplemented with and reinforced by carbon tribe content and other materials backed by AI-designed biochemistry, vastly increasing their life cycle robustness and output. These microbes are crafted for specific manufacturers who use them to produce targeted chemical end yields of astounding variety and volume. There's little doubt that large-scale product manufacturing and sales in this future period owe much to small-scale processes. Complicated assembly and production techniques take the amazing materials already mentioned, as well as thousands of others, in a staggering number of simultaneous directions. Drip formers, which may be envisioned as the spiritual descendants of modern 3D printers and prototypers, are often small, self-contained, and mobile, capable of laying down material with atomic-scale precision. Drip form squadrons, as is the standard terminology, can create perfect copies of even complex machinery and structures when networked and provided with the requisite raw materials. Taken as a whole, the materials outlined in this episode help to represent a bright, shiny future, more or less. But like all things in Star Drifter, your access to them depends upon your location in the galaxy. Most of this sort of thing is available throughout corporate space, 
parts of the alliance and empire, as well as pockets of economic and social progress within church space. This still leaves many billions of people who have to get by how and with whatever they can, which sometimes means nothing at all. Still, it's been speculated that the future of the galaxy will be inextricably bound to that of innovation, if it hasn't been already. The progression of life as a whole may well become deliberately intertwined with supermaterials to form people, animals, and plants that are partly or entirely machine-made, and therefore ever-evolving, with organs and bodily components supplemented or even replaced by new, as yet undreamed of, substances, improving upon biological efficiency and resilience. Discoveries and applications such as these could bring life to a state far beyond anything foreseen by those who came before us, including Mother Nature herself. And that's about all we've got on the topic of supermaterials for now. I'll throw in more ideas to the Star Drifter stories as they come to me. If you have any comments or questions, please drop me an email, and I'll try to shed a little more light onto this fascinating, if entirely bogus, subject. Then again, they're all bogus. That's just a show. Coming up in episode 11, we'll take a look at something often mentioned in passing, but never yet dwelled upon, namely, frontier space. The four supernations and several dozen smaller independent stellar associations are a huge part of the tapestry of this time period. But there's another aspect of life in space many never consider. Private colonist movements and national settlement campaigns over the years have spread out beyond the regularly patrolled and recognized borders of the various nations. These are comprised of people who have gone on to found settlements in the as yet officially unexplored reaches of the Orion arm of our galaxy. Many such settlements might be small, struggling, and barely even noticeable. Some might be larger and legitimately thriving. And rumor has it among those who claim to have wandered out there and back that vast civilizations rivaling anything within the agreed-upon borders of settled space are even now starting to take form. What's true? What's myth? And what can we even hope to confirm? Join me, if you will, for a look into the black where shiny wonders, strange imaginings, and dangerous trends might well be lurking just a step or two beyond the farthest star. Next time on Voice from the Void. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, written and read by David Collins Rivera. This podcast is a presentation of Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through no copyright sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. 
This podcast discusses fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2019 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care.